He spoke as one with authority. And I loved it. He wasn't very tall. But he stood with very erect posture, always had on a a suit and a tie. And maybe it was his crisp South African accent that made him seem as if he had a direct line to God's heart and mind and wisdom. It's my Yale Divinity School professor, Abraham Malherby. Even his name sounded smart to us. His class in New Testament started as the second hand passed right over, or the big hand passed right over the 12 on the clock in the classroom. And the lecture went on with great insight and grandeurs, and I believed he knew everything about the Bible. And then 55 minutes later, when the the the, uh, second hand would go by again at five of the hour, he closed his books and we were done. Precision. I believed he knew Paul's motives in the scripture, the Greco-Roman culture. He could have even walked with Jesus as far as we knew. He made scripture come alive. It wasn't boring. He turned on the culture and he turned on light bulbs in our brains. Who knew that he was also compassionate and patient and easy to talk to outside of that room? Well, Jesus' teaching captured the imagination of the synagogue in much the same way that day in Capernaum. Usually you see various scribes would come through on the Sabbath day for them to study Torah. They didn't have a presiding, like a presiding pastor that was the head there. There was a a bunch of different scribes that would come and work on the scripture together. Jesus grew up, you see, around there. So he was familiar with Capernaum and they with him. And they invited him one day to come and talk about the Torah, the law. But there was a different quality and vibrancy to his lessons. Mark writes in his gospel in the very first chapter. Mark is the first gospel written. It's the first time we have recorded a story by one of the um, disciples or apostles. And so it's the earliest gospel. And it's also in chapter 1 that Mark already has Jesus uh, casting out demons. Mark writes in his gospel, first chapter, they were astounded at Jesus' teaching, for he taught like one having authority. He taught like one having authority. You see, the scribes, when they came to town, they would teach, but they would always quote someone else. They would, te- they would quote another uh, another rabbi, another uh, scholar, another uh, learned person, but they would never talk from the heart about their own understanding of Scripture. They didn't have that authority. But Jesus, when he spoke, he would just consult no one. He was the source and the insight into God's intentions in the law, and he wowed the crowds. And demons... Those demons that came up right away in chapter 1, as soon as Jesus stands up to speak, the powers of darkness that want to overthrow all that God is doing, the powers that pull us down and back and away, they already confront and recognize Jesus. The people aren't so sure who he is, but the demons, the unclean spirits, they know immediately that this is a force to contend with. 
Now, demons never confronted, confronted us in uh, Professor Malherbe's class. Uh, but they spoke right up to Jesus, as I said. They, identita- they identified Jesus from the get-go. They say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I don't know how demons speak, but I'm making a go at it. <laughs> have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And immediately, as John will, or as Mark says, whenever he writes, those of us in women's Bible study are studying Mark this year. So I'm all hepped up with Mark. And they know that one of his um, characteristics as an author, Mark, is everything happens immediately. Immediately. He's the first gospel writer and he wants the world to know that Christ has come, he has broken into our world, and immediately all things are changing. And so he uses this constantly. The demons spake out and say, who are you? And immediately Jesus rebukes the bold demon, it says, and silenced it. And then with a convulsion, the unclean spirit, the demon, left the man. You see, Mark wants to waste no time showing us the type of holy one that Jesus is. A compassionate rabbi who not only can teach about God, but isn't afraid also to enter into another's suffering and to free them from all that ails them. His words are given even more authority by his display of power over the demons at that moment, his ability to heal and restore life and help those in misery who are sick mentally or physically or oppressed by society. Mark wants us to know right up front that this man has come to change the world to break the backs of the powers that try to drag us down, the evil that can confront us in our world. They have already been driven away as we open the first chapter. God's reign is breaking in. God's kingdom is coming. And Mark quickly makes clear that this Jesus is Lord, and he's come to put an end to death and demon possession. Now God's liberating reign, his kingdom, is breaking in with blinding hope for all of us because we choose this reading at this time of year because it is an epiphany. Epiphany. We're in the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, and Epiphany is a liturgical season year where it means that the revelation of who Christ is is dawning on people. It's like a, aha, you know an epiphany in everyday languages. Whoa, the light bulb went on. I get it now. Oh. So in chapter 1, Jesus stands up, he speaks for just a few sentences, the demons come, he drives them out. Oh, I get it. He's Lord over all creation. He is coming to save us. He is from God. All these things happen in the first chapter of Mark. But if we discuss demons uh, as something we believe in today, I'm not sure what we would get. First century Palestine, it was a no-brainer. The demons were all around. They were just here and there, and every person they directed things, there was no doubt that they were being ridden around by demons everywhere they went. But today, today, some of you may say, well, yes, I believe there's a a dark force of evil in the world, certainly. There'll be a lot of, no, absolutely not. That was just just Bible stuff long ago. And some of you are in between. And maybe some of you have even had a very mysterious and frightening experience with darkness and evil that you were too embarrassed to even admit. Be that as it may, Jesus goes to cure the problem without any explanation needed. 
Now, maybe you do believe, some of us, on second thought, that there are demons at work in the world. That is, perhaps, why we have a culprit, a mysterious culprit called deflate gate going on in our midst. Maybe the demons did it. That would be the true answer. Or are they the reason that every night on nightly news broadcasters lead story for days and days and days was not all the suffering and hardship in the world, the refugees, the killing going on in the Ukraine by Soviet rockets, but it was who did deflate gate? Who was responsible? Who was it? Was it the referees? Was it the captain? Was it Tom Brady? Who was it? That was perhaps the demons at work. I don't know. But when evil happens in our world and we lose a loved one tragically and we suffer through the loss of a job or some sort of um, equilibrium in our lives, uh, we need help. And agnostics and atheists ask tough questions of us believers at that time. So where is your God? Is God truly alive? That's why I don't believe in God. Look what's going on in your life and you believe. If God loves us, why doesn't God stop it all? Of course, Mark is telling us today in chapter 1 of his gospel that Christ does stop it. He has stopped it. Jesus has come altogether to empty himself and take the form of a servant, a suffering servant, mind you, alongside of us and in place of us so that we might never have to face the finality of death and despair. And ironically, it is often when we are humbly afraid and hurting when we finally see the God we thought was absent has been by our side all along. There's a famous sermon preached by the former chaplain of Yale University, William Sloan Coffin. When his son Alex, uh, I think a young a teenager or in his early 20s, died after his car went off the road and sunk to the bottom of the Boston Harbor. William Sloan Coffin preached at his own son's funeral, and he said this, When a person dies... There are many things that can be said, and at least one thing that should never be said. The night after Alex died, a woman came by carrying quiches. She shook her head sadly, saying, I just don't understand the will of God. Instantly, says Sloan Coffin, I swarmed all over her. I'll say you don't, lady. Do you think it was the will of God that Alex never fixed that lousy windshield wiper? That he was probably driving too fast in the storm? Do you think it's God's will that there are no street lights along that stretch of road? Nothing so infuriates me as the incapacity, he says, of intelligent people to get it through their heads that God doesn't go around with his finger on triggers, his fist around knives his hands on steering wheels. God is dead set against unnatural deaths. The one thing that should never be said when someone dies is, it is the will of God. My own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die. That when the waves closed over that sinking car, 
God's heart was the first of all hearts to break. I believe this is true. And I've used this quotation, this excerpt from his, his sermon thoughts in funerals uh, several times. Because the uniqueness of the Christian good news for the world is God can't stand to live without us. We believe in a self-sacrificing God who keeps coming back for his children in their fear and their brokenness and their blindness. He comes to earth in our shoes to save us, to cast out all that demonizes us, and stands as a blockade between him and us. He comes to establish his kingdom of love, his reign among us. He wanted to know what it felt like to be us, so he went to hell and back to make sure that we would never have to fear death's grasp. He became weak, so we could become strong, saved only by his grace, a free, undeserved gift of love, eternal love. And even now, Whenever we are filled with doubts and the blues, if we cannot say, yes, Lord, I believe, he waits alongside of us or sends neighbors or friends or even an email, something on Facebook that we can't believe happened just when when we needed it. He even sends frail strangers to us to light the pathway home. Demons of doubt are sent packing because of Christ's love for us all. That is Mark's message in chapter 1 of the first gospel ever written. And I close with one other amazing epiphany insight by Jack Cornfield. He says this, It's the basic principle of spiritual life that we learn the deepest things in unknown territory. Often it is when we feel most confused inwardly and are in the midst of our greatest difficulties that something new will open up. We awaken most easily to the mystery of life through our weakest side. The areas of our greatest strength, where we are the most competent and the clearest, tend to keep us away from the mystery. So come, Lord Jesus. Come with all your authority and hold us, heal us, and give us hope and comfort everlasting. Amen.